All right, yeah, so we're going to speak on the subject of the man who would be king. And yes, I stole that title from Rudyard Kipling, but I know y'all all knew that right off the bat. Right? No, nobody. Okay, Judges chapter number 8, beginning verse number 22. We'll read the last part of this chapter as our text. Then the men of Israel said unto Gideon, Rule thou over us. Now, Gideon, you remember, he's just led the victory over the Midianites, you know, the 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 pitchers and the trumpets and, and all that. They've, they've won the battle after the series of events. And Verse 22 says, The men of Israel said unto Gideon, Rule thou over us, both thou and thy son, and thy son's son also, for thou hast delivered us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said unto them, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And Gideon said unto them, I would desire a request of you that ye would give me every man the earrings of his prey. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. That's the Midianites that they've just defeated as part of their kind of a trophies of war. They took these earrings out of, off of these guys. Verse 25. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a garment and did cast therein every man the earrings of his prey. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was a thousand and seven hundred shekels of gold, besides ornaments and collars and purple raiment that was on the kings of Midian, and beside the chains that were upon their camels' necks. And Gideon made an ephod thereof, and put it in his city, even in Ophrah, and all Israel went thither, a whoring after it, which thing became a snare unto Gideon and to his house." Thus was Midian subdued before the children of Israel, so that they were lifted up their head, so that they lifted up their heads no more. And the country was in quietness forty years in the days of Gideon. Verse twenty-nine. And Jerubbabel, that's another name for Gideon, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. And Gideon had threescore and ten sons of his body begotten, for he had many wives. And his concubine that was in Shechem. She also bare him a son whose name he called Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in, his, in a good old age and was buried in the sepulcher of Joash's father in Ophrah of the Abi Ezrites. And it came to pass, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel turned again and went a whoring after Balaam and made Belbereth their god. And the children of Israel remembered not the Lord their God, who had delivered them out of the hands of all their enemies on every side. Neither showed they kindness to the house of Jerubbabel, namely Gideon, according to all the goodness which he had showed unto Israel. I like playing trivia games. Uh, it's uh, fun. I actually downloaded the little uh, uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire app. Uh, on my phone, I've been playing it the last few days just for fun, and um, you know it's it, it's it's fun. I, I like playing these games. I mean, we used to as a family, we'd get a Trivial Pursuit out, but I think me and Lisa were banned from uh, playing uh, pretty much, so that's just not fair. They wouldn't let us be on the same team anymore. But anyway, I, I like to watch TV shows like Jeopardy. I like to play along with that, or you know, Wheel of Fortune too. I like those game shows and kind of you know the trivia and things, and you you play along with. And sometimes I even amaze myself at the useless information that I have stored away back there, you know, that, that comes up. Uh, you know, sometimes though, when you're playing these games, you have to be careful to under to make sure you understand the question right. Sometimes they can be a little tricky. And uh, sometimes you have to consider how old the game is. I remember playing, uh, this is a long time ago, I was probably a teenager, but uh, I was playing like a sports trivia game. 
and it was a little bit older, and the question came up of who was the all-time leading rusher in the NFL. And well, at that time, it was Emmett Smith. Emmett Smith had just broke the record. But that was the wrong answer. The right answer was Walter Payton, because when the game was published, Walter Payton had that record. It just was too old, okay? Somebody's got to be careful things like that. Let me give you a little trivia oddity that's just a fun little thing, and this is uh, actually this is uh, the bonus question on the midterms for my class on historical books. This is the bonus question. I'm going to give it to you, okay? Who was the first president of the United States? Anybody? George Washington. Or is it? It depends. Okay? Being one of those people right here. George Washington was the first president under the Constitution. But the Constitution was not the first form of government that the, uh, that the United States had. We had before it the Articles of Confederation. Nobody remembers those, but we had them. Under the Articles of Confederation, there was the office called President of the United States in Congress Assembled. President of the United States in Congress Assembled. The first person to hold that office for one year, beginning in November 1781, was a man named John Hanson. So, if I ask you who was the first president of the United States, it depends. Is it under our modern constitution? Well, yeah, it's George Washington. Is it the first person to ever be called president in an American form of government? It's John Hanson. And the answer to the bonus question is John Hanson, okay? It's a, it's a fun little trivia tidbit that y'all don't even care about, I know. But let me go this way. If I were to ask you who was the first king of Israel, who would you say? You might slip up and say David, but it wasn't David. Uh, you say Saul. Saul's correct. Saul was the first king. Of, or was he? Or was he? In this sermon, I want to introduce you to someone that's often overlooked. The first man to claim the title king over Israel. It wasn't David. It wasn't Saul. It was not Gideon. We met him in verse number 31 of our text. His story is told in chapter number 9, but I want you to see the background. But in verse number 31, there's a man born named Abimelech. His name means my father the king. Now I want you to learn this morning a few things. I got a few points I want to draw from his life, mainly from chapter nine, of lessons to learn about from the man who would be king and the mistakes that he made. Let me see how we're doing on time. I've got a section. Hey, check this out. I've got a section I can cut out. I'm going to cut it out for the sake of time. I'm going to be nice to y'all. I'll summarize though real quick. The idea that there would be a king in Israel was not a surprise when when they requested a king to Samuel and they made Saul king. It goes back further. Actually, God promised to Abraham that kings would come out of him, that he would be that of his sins would be kings. And then Deuteronomy 17. I, I would love to go through there and dissect this, but it's fun. The last part of Deuteronomy 17 in the law of Moses is actually stipulations and requirements for when Israel had a king. God already set up centuries before there was a king. He said, when you have a king, this is what you do. God knew a king was coming, and he had prepared and planned for it. 
Sometimes people get ahead of God. Sometimes we get our own self-will. And I think that's what we see in the short life of Abimelech in chapters 8 and 9 of Judges. A man whose heart was not right, who was filled with personal ambition, who stepped into a place God had not intended for him or anyone to be just yet. His efforts failed miserably because God was not behind them. So I've got a few things I want us to learn from his mistakes. First off, I want to say that he followed the wrong example of his father. He followed the wrong example of his father. In our text, we read in Judges 8, verse 30, it says that Gideon had threescore and ten sons of his body, for he had many wives, had seventy sons. I don't know how many wives he had, but too many. And his concubine was at Shechem. She also bare a son whose name was Abimelech. Now Gideon is one of the great figures of the Old Testament. When you talk about heroes of the book of Judges, you'll think about Gideon. He raised up, uh, God raised him up to free Israel from the oppression of the Midianites that had come in. He was not a perfect man, nobody is, but he was a man that God used mightily. Famously, he's the guy that put the call out and all the guys came in and God said, you got too many, send some home, send some home. And they finally get down to 300 guys and God said, I can work with those. Those 300 men that surrounded the Midianite camp blew the trumpets and shouted, you know, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And then they broke the pitchers with the candles in them and, uh, and, and, and everybody, uh, you know, the, the people panicked, the enemy panicked. And, oh, we're surrounded. Every candle is a, you know, a, a legion or whatever. I can't remember what the term is now. Uh, they said, we're surrounded. And so they basically turn on each other and the confusion and in all that confusion, there's this great victory that's won. The beginning of chapter eight follows up that and they, they kind of chase down some of the remnants of that. Uh, from this battle and they, they get the two kings and they kill them after they kill those two kings which is about the time we, we pick up there he um it, it talks about the spoils from this victory and i think it's interesting they took just the earrings off these guys that they that they had killed and they piled them all up they put a jacket or coat on the ground you know and started piling these things up and they weighed them. It said it was uh, 1,700 shekels of weight. I did the math. I actually made a spreadsheet to do this because I'm weird like that. But if you do that, it's 684 ounces of gold. 684 ounces. At the spot price of gold, I don't remember what that was off the top of my head, but the spot price Friday afternoon, if you do the math, that's $1.3 million in gold that's piled up on that and that's not counting all the rest of the stuff. That's just this one thing. That's a lot. That's a pretty good haul for one battle. The people recognized his greatness. They requested, they said, Gideon, why don't you rule over us? Gideon, be our king, and then your son can take over. Basically, we'll set up a dynasty. We'll be the house of Gideon. This will be great. Gideon wisely refused. But I do say his, his heart does appear to have wavered. I think, uh, I think there's pride that crept in. He's an interesting guy, but I think pride kind of crept in after his successes. The number of wives that he had, uh, I think there's a pride. He's elevating himself. And some of that may be like building alliances, you know, like they would do in kingdoms and things. But uh, I think maybe some of that. Also, he takes, you read that, he takes those earrings and he, makes a, he basically makes a golden outfit out of them. I guess links them together and it talks about an ephod. So he basically makes this like golden garment uh, 
to show off his victory. Uh, it says it became a snare to him because they started kind of like worship, worshiping it as an idol. So you have kind of two sides to the man Gideon. You have the man who obeyed God, who did great things, but then you've got the man who gave in to his pride. Which side did his son follow? His son followed the wrong side. He didn't learn to trust God. He didn't learn to obey God. He learned to be proud. That seed that Gideon planted bore rotten fruit in his son Abimelech. In fact, that name Abimelech, if you say, well, it may sound a little bit familiar if you get further into history, that's the name of the leaders of the Philistines. It's a very common name in the Old Testament. This is uh, they, they must have took it from him. The name means my father, a king. Proverbs 22.6 tells us, Train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. I think Gideon failed in that. Gideon failed, at least in this boy. I don't know about the other 70. I don't think he had a lot of time. He got the Duggars beat by what, you know, four, fourfold there? I saw a post online uh, this week that I really liked. It said this. It says, if you raise your children, you will spoil your grandkids. If you spoil your children, you'll raise your grandkids. Well, that's pretty profound, isn't it? That's pretty profound. I like the song that we sing, and I think it ought to be a constant prayer. God, give us Christian homes. Let's raise up our kids. Let's give them an example to follow. Because I, I, I don't want my kids to pick up my bad habits. They do. But I want to give them an example they can follow. One of the first mistakes Abimelech failed in was he saw the way his father was living at the time, and he modeled himself. Not after the good man who was before, but the proud man that he became. Second, I want to say that he sought aid from unbelievers. We get into chapter 9 here, uh, beginning of verse 1. And Abimelech, the son of Jerubal, went to Shechem unto his mother's brethren. Now, we've already said at the end of chapter 9, it talks about that they had turned from God and started failing, uh, worshiping this Baal. Well, he goes to his mother's brethren. I think that's important. And commune with them and with all the family of the house of his mother's father, saying, Speak, I pray you, in the ears of all the men of Shechem, whether it's better for you, either that all the sons of Jerubal, I mean, all, you know, which are 70, or, or, I'm doing the math, three score and ten, all those 70 boys out there reign over you, or that one reign over you. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's brethren spake of him in the ears of all the men of Shechem, all these words, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. Verse number four, and they gave him threescore and ten pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Bareth, wherewith Abimelech hired vain and like persons which followed him. They gave him um, a piece of silver for every one of the people he was going to kill. But notice where it came from there. It came out of the pagan temple, the house of Baal Bareth. Number, uh, if, in verse number one, it talks about the son of Jerubel. This is interesting. That's Gideon's kind of title. Kind of reminds me of Roman history where you had like a Scipio Africanus. I like that name. This sounds cool. But he was called Africanus because he won a great battle in Africa. So that kind of became his nickname. You know, he was Africanus because he, he defeated the Africans uh, uh, down there. Uh, well, that's kind of like he. Well, he he destroyed. You go back in chapter six. He uh, he destroyed a 
a, 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 a temple there uh, for Baal or an altar to Baal in chapter 6, verse 32. So he got this name, contender with Baal. He hates Baal. He fights against Baal. But there's clearly, I think, here a distinction because while he did that, I don't know how much his boys did that, but definitely this guy's mom was definitely pagan. Because verse 4, you look, where did they go? There's, there's a pagan temple there, the house of Baal Bareth. His mother's family evidently are idolaters. And by the way, that name means Lord of the Covenant, which they say is either the um, the covenant between the, the Palestinian people, the, the, the Canaanite people, Palestinian is not the right name, uh, but the Canaanite people and the Jews, or maybe it's some kind of weird mix of Jehovah and the local god Baal, remembering the covenant between God and Israel. Either way, we're talking paganism here. I thought about this and this little story where he ran when it when you know okay I, I got something I want to do I got trouble here where does he run to and I I think where you run to in trouble says a lot about you a drunk runs to the bottle a junkie runs to drugs a coward runs and hides but where do we run you need money where do you run do we run to the pawn shop <laughs> do we run to that rich uncle wish I had one of those uh, but do we do we, you need somebody taken care of when you're like, oh, i got to get somebody. you got somebody you call, hey, go take care of this. Who do we run to when there's trouble? Abimelech ran to an unbelieving family. Abimelech ran to a pagan temple. Abimelech ran to a murderous scheme, we will find out here in the next section. David wrote in Psalm 143, verse 9, Deliver me, O Lord, from mine enemies. I flee unto thee to hide me. Oh, if we could only learn where to run. When we have a need, when we have trouble, we'd ever learn not to run to all the places around. I'm going to tell you what, there's a lot of things you can run to. You get in a jam financially, you ought to run to our knees in prayer. We shouldn't run to the tidal pond place over here. We shouldn't run to, hey, I need to steal something. Hey, I need to, we need to start, we need to learn to run to God in our problems. And here you can already see in Abimelech, there's a problem. Because where is he going to? He's turning to schemes. He's turning to pagans. He's turning to pagan money, if you will, in this. So he sought aid from unbelievers, a warning to us. Number three. We'll say he destroyed others to succeed himself. Verse number five, picking up the story, it says, And he, Abimelech, went into his father's house at Ophrah and slew his brethren, the sons of Drubal, being threescore and ten persons upon one stone. That's pretty cold-blooded murder. We're going to line them up, lay them out, and just slay them one after one on this rock. Notwithstanding, yet Jotham, the youngest son of Drubal, was left, for he hid himself. And all the men of Shechem gathered together in all the house of Milo, and went and made Abimelech king by the plain of the pillar that was in Shechem. What does he do? He goes out, I'm going to eliminate my competition. He kills 70 men to solidify his claim to being the heir to his father, of being the leader. Talk about a heinous crime. Number one, 70 people. But those were his brothers, half-brothers mainly. But those were his own family, his own kin. 
and he kills them to solidify his place on the throne. I'll tell you one thing I cannot stand in our modern society is the dog-eat-dog mentality that is everywhere. It is in our homes. Siblings will turn on each other. Spouses will turn on each other. It's in our businesses. Oh my goodness. We all know stories about that. We've seen the people that will climb and step on you. They don't care what happens to you. As long as they get a promotion, as long as they look good in the eyes of their boss, they'll do anything. And I'll tell you, it's scary. It's even in our churches, this dog-eat-dog mentality. If you have to... If somebody, okay, I'm writing this from the first person. I almost misread this. I'm writing this from the... If you have to fail so I can succeed, I'm really not succeeding. Success shouldn't just elevate one person. It should elevate the group, the team, the family. That's what true success does. If I have to destroy my family to be a success, I have failed. If I have to destroy my church to be a success, I have failed. If I have to destroy other churches, other leaders to be a success, I have failed. If I have to destroy my relationship with God to be a success, I have failed. We cannot fall prey to the thinking of the world around us. It's not all about me and my success. We need to be bringing other people up. What is it about? New Testament talks about exhort one another, encourage one another, lift one another up. It's not all about us, how far we can get ahead. It's about grabbing a hold of somebody by the hand and saying, come on, let's go forward together. Lift others up around you. Number four, he attacked those who disagreed with him. Now, for the sake of time, verses 7 through 20, I'm going to kind of summarize them real quick. Jotham, the other young man that survived uh, the slaughter of his family, the half-brother of Abimelech, he shows up and he, he speaks to Abimelech in a parable. And it's, it's, it's kind of funny in a way. There's The trees want a king, and so they go and they're hey, you want to be our king? Be a king. The other trees want to be the king. But they finally go to the bramble. <laughs> they go to the briar bush. Hey, you want to be our king? And they're like, yeah, of course. I'll be your king, and when I do, we're going to start a war against the strong cedars of Lebanon. We're going to go up there, and basically it says that he's going to start a fire, again, and then the fire is going to consume him. It's, it's, it's prophetic what happens. But basically, he's calling out Abimelech and his fathers. It's funny. Comparing them, oh, you're not a tree, you're a briar bush. That's, a, that's an insult. I mean, we're country enough, we understand. That's an insult, you know. Very poetic one. He's basically, he's basically calling Abimelech trash by comparing him to the bramble bush. But note what Jotham does in verse number 21. After he appears and he gives this little speech, calls out his brother, what does he do? He runs and hides. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and dwelt there for fear of Abimelech his brother. Now, there's not a doubt in my mind Abimelech would have killed him. He, he already survived one mass murder. But those, he murdered in cold blood. He just went in, I'm going to kill you guys. This guy has called him out. This guy has confronted him. 
I think Abimelech is the kind of guy who's laying awake at night thinking, <laughs> how can I kill him? Uh, how can I make this slow and torch? How can I make an example out of him? One of the best measures of a man is to observe how they handle being confronted for being wrong. Some lash out and attack. A couple of personal stories I want to share on, on these. Uh, but I had a conversation with a leader years ago and um, had a reputation for you know kind of getting angry, getting combative uh, when 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 you, when when you talk to him, if you had to confront him over anything. First thing I told him, I said, look, I said, I will not fight you. I will not fight you. I will turn. I will walk away. We're, we're done. But I will not fight with you. We're not getting personal with this. We just need to talk about this issue. Um, I almost had to. There's a point. Look, I'll walk out. I, I'm, we're just not going there. Thank God we were able to work things out. Thing, you know, things were good, but um, it was a very sticky situation because he, it was one of those people that would just naturally, his tendency was just to lash out. I'd never dealt with somebody who doesn't want to admit they're wrong. I mean, none of us like to admit we're wrong. Uh, another situation I dealt with, and I hate using personal examples, but um, there was a leader I was dealing with had mishandled something and... Um, Basically, felt like I was I was calling out their uh, their honesty. You know, basically saying they were dishonest, and they actually looked me in the eye and said, "Have I ever lied to you?" Um, don't ever ask that question, because I could say yes. I almost fell out of the chair, <laughs> and and when I, I told them, I, I told them when, and uh, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Maybe I was being bad, but um, I'll say we didn't get that one worked out. That situation did not work out. Can I give you some advice? You want an example? And by the way, you want a good, compare Abimelech to David. Abimelech does everything wrong. David does most everything right. But when I was reading this and I was thinking about this, what Abimelech would have done to his brother who confronted him, how did David react when Nathan called him out? Well, he called him out good. He said, David, thou art the man. You know what David did? David said, whoa, I'm wrong. David repented. David wasn't about David, his own ego. It was about being right with God. He, he had a higher standard that he tried to live by. Even though he had failed, he still, he repented. He, he, he changed. He turned. So that's the fourth thing I want us to see. Lessons to learn from Abimelech is that he attacked those who disagreed with him. Now I've shown you four mistakes by Abimelech as he set out to be king. God would not and could not honor his ambition. It was born purely of pride and, and I would say flat out rebellion against God. Quickly, I want to, we're going to do the Paul Harvey rest of the story right here. I didn't say it right. The rest of the story. You got to say it right. That was leading up to him kind of getting established. And the rest of the chapter is his downfall. I've got 13 things I'm just going to hit really quick. Observations, these are signs, uh, I guess you will, of, of poor leadership as things start to fall apart. And I'm just going to hit these very, very, very quickly. These are the results of Abimelech's rebellion, his poor leadership, his corrupted character. Verse 23, 
after only a three-year reign over them, the people of Shechem rebel against Abimelech. That marriage didn't last very long. Number one, the leadership tenure is short. That's a sign of poor leadership, short tenure. Second, their allies often become their foes. Verse 26, he faces a revolt under the leadership of a man named Gaul. That's fun to say. You got the two A's in there. You got to get in there. By the way, number three, there is a constant attempt to usurp the position of, of, of the weak and corrupt leadership. In verse number 30, Zebel, the governor of Shechem, double crosses Gail. He sides with the usurper Gail and then double crosses him and turns back to Abimelech. And uh, it's a lot of politics and stuff going on there. Number four, there's constant maneuvering and drama when there's weak, weak leadership. Number five, there's a reliance on backroom deals. Things take place behind the scenes, not in the open. Verse 45, Abimelech attacks and destroys the town of Shechem, the place that proclaimed him king three years ago. He now destroys the town. And it says he even sowed salt. They plowed the ground and dumped salt in it to kill the ground, to make it uninhabitable. Number six, there are, attack, there are attacks against those that oppose weak leadership. Number seven, there's a scorched earth policy against enemies. We can't just let, let bygones be bygones. We have to destroy them. Verse 46, the remaining men of Shechem, they've barricaded themselves into a tower, a, a fortress-like position. Um, and there they are, uh, you know, like, okay, we'll, we'll hold out. We'll hold out against Abimelech. He can't take this position. Verses 47 through 49, Abimelech and his followers take tree branches up. They pile them up around that tower. They burn them out. They burn these people alive inside of that tower. Number eight, there is no quarter offered to foes, only obliteration. Number nine, others join in the example of the leader's attacks. He didn't do that by himself. The story is he picks up a branch and everybody says, okay, we'll do that too. And everybody grabs a branch and goes up and they start this fire. They followed his example. In verse 50, Abimelech attacks the town of Thebes. Uh, they had likely also rebelled. It's not explicitly stated, but it's nearby and probably part of this kind of rebellion against his authority. Point number 10. Once one foe is defeated, another must be found because the war must continue. That's weak leadership. The people there, they take refuge. They have another defensive tower, fortress. I think of the Greek, Greek Acropolis uh, kind of thing, if you know history. Uh, but they, 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 they go up there. There's a desperate, there's a desperate battle here is... They know what happened to uh, over at Shechem. So they're fighting back with everything they've got. As Abimelech and his men move forward to attack, I mean, they're, they're throwing everything but the kitchen sink at them. Probably even the kitchen sink. Because what do they do? There's a woman, usually not on the front lines of battle. And what is she throwing? She doesn't have an arrow. She doesn't have a javelin. What is she throwing? A piece of a millstone. They took a, a millstone, busted it up, and she grabs a chunk of millstone and dumps it over the edge of this tower. It hits Abimelech. He's fatally wounded. Kind of reminds me of the nameless, aimless archer that, that killed Ahab. Here's the nameless, aimless 
woman with a rock. <laughs> she, she throws it down, hits him. He's mortally wounded. He calls out to his armor bearer, kind of like Saul did. There's all these echoes to later things in this. But he calls out, he says, oh, it's too embarrassing for them to say I was killed by a woman. Won't you kill me so they won't say a woman killed me? Number 11, on weak leadership, they often meet a, a very ignoble end, shall we put it that way. It's often embarrassment, the way things end. In, verse, in, in number 12 observation, they cover their embarrassing failures even in the death and defeat. They don't want anybody to know the truth about their failures. It's all about image. Then in verse 55, you will see that Abimelech was dead. All the thieves, all the thieves, all the strife suddenly ceases. It's like, oh, he's dead. What happens? The attacker's like, okay, well, I guess we're done here. Let's go home. Battle's over. They killed the leader. That's why they used to shoot at the chiefs, you know, when the Indians attacked. They shot the chief. This, you know, confused. Well, here, like, oh, okay. Well, then much dead. We're done. Let's go home. Everybody goes home. And that's my 13th observation is when the, that poor leadership finally ends, there's peace. When the weak leader's gone, there's finally peace. The turmoil was not the job or the business or the church. The turmoil was the weak leader. Observations. I told you I was going to get into leadership. A lot of observations there um, when weak leadership is present. You can learn a lot from the mistakes of Abimelech. Wrap this up, though. Four points to conclude. Are we motivated by selfish desires or by God's prompting? God had said there was going to be a king. He promised it to Abraham Moses wrote out, God told Moses, you know, write this out. When there's a king, here's the things he's supposed to do. Here's the things he's not supposed to do. Deuteronomy 17. Abimelech is a classic example of someone who acts selfishly. They want something that God never intended for them. They wanted to be somebody bigger than what their lot in life was. Second, do we follow God's example or the world's? Abimelech in his actions... He acts just like the stories of the pagan peoples of history. Read the stories of the, the, the old Greeks, the old Romans, the double-crossing, the intrigue, the murder that goes in. He acts just like those guys. These are the kind of things that should have never happened among God's people, yet they did. Too often we say, how do I handle a situation? We don't, hey, let me let me go to the guidebook and see. What we do is, uh, what does what, the TV say? Hey, what, 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 what worked here? We turn to the world. We turn to a corrupt, broken system to solve our problems too often. Instead of following what God said, this is the way that we need to live. This is the best way. Number three, I want to encourage leaders, and by the way, everyone is a leader at some point. Say, well, I'm not a president, I'm not a CEO, I'm not a manager, I'm not a pastor, I'm not whatever. It doesn't matter. We all lead in some capacity in a home, in a business, in a you know, in your barbershop quartet, whatever that is. You you, you may you may be a leader in some situation, and I'm again, true leadership is by the book by the book. You want good leadership? It goes by the book. And fourth, the root of Abimelech's failure is that he did not serve the Lord. He served his own self-interest. 
You know, he knew God. I'm convinced he did. I'm convinced that he really did. There was still a faithful witness there. He knew who his dad was. He knew what his dad did. He called it Jerubbabel. He knows that he destroyed the, 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 the altar of Baal. He knows these things. Yet he still chose to chase after other gods in an attempt to get power. So musicians come, I have to remind you, do not reject God. Do not reject Him. How many people today, and you can think of names and you can fill in the blank on that, people who knew what was right, yet they chose the opposite. That knew better, yet they chose opposite. That's the story of Abimelech. Someone who should have known better. Yes, his dad messed up. Yes, there's pagans in the land, but he should have known. He should have done better. Folks, how many people know that there is a God and they don't want to follow Him? How many folks know that Christ came and died on that cross? Listen, if that was... I laugh on the trivia shows. Every time on Jeopardy there's a Bible category... Those idiots, these are brilliant people. Those idiots don't know anything about the Bible. But if you were to put up there, who died on the cross for man's sins? I'm going to tell you, I think they all would say, oh yeah, that's Jesus. Yeah, that's what they believe. They know. They know. But they in their heart have rejected it. So somebody said the longest difference, uh, distance for a human to cover is the difference between their, distance between their head and their heart. We can know what's right, but we have to believe it. He said, well, I, I know that Jesus will save me in sins. Well, have you believed it? Have you believed it? Doesn't matter if you know. Doesn't matter if you can pass the test. Doesn't matter if you can win that $1,000 on Jeopardy with that question. What matters is, in all eternity, have you believed? Have you trusted in Him? Don't follow the example of Abimelech. He's a cautionary tale what not to do. And first and foremost, do not reject the truth. Do not reject God. Accept it into your hearts. Olam, what's the uh, song there? 285 in the Baptist hymnal, if you want to sing along with the invitation song. If you'll stand, please, we'll have a short time of the invitation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, different kind of sermon here this morning and, and really kind of developed into uh, maybe more of a leadership study than a, a traditional sermon, but uh, the, the story of this man and his ambition uh, of the evil that he wrought in among your people, Lord, uh, just it astounds me to see this type of situation. Book of Judges is a very dark time for Israel, but here's a man who should have done better. Lord, how many are, are among us today that have the same? We should do better. Lord, let us, let us learn from this man's mistakes. Learn from the example of what not to do so that we can follow you. We can serve you. Lord, that we can lead in the right way. Let's learn from the example of the man who would be king. Lord, let us instead learn to be those who would kneel before you. Challenge us, I pray, Lord. A lot of stuff hitting this message here. Challenge us, I pray, with the truths from your word this morning. Motivate us to do great things for you, not after our own selfish ambition, but out of our faith and love and service to you. Speak to us now in this invitation time, I pray in the holy name. Amen.